Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, well, welcome back, everybody, to Jonah chapter 2. And so let's just give a little bit of a recap. Last week, we started the book of Jonah. He was called to be a prophet to Nineveh, which was a pagan city. And instead of going to Nineveh, he goes 2,000 miles in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. He tries to run away from God as the prophet of God. And the men on the boat are more religious than Jonah because they're praying. And um, anyway, finally, Jonah says, I would rather disobey God and be thrown overboard and die at the bottom of the ocean than to obey him and go to the Ninevites. So he said, just throw me overboard. And so the question we've got to ask is, how did chapter 1 end? So let's read the very end of chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed, key word there, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Lord appointed, the Lord ordained, the Lord caused, whatever word you want to use there. God sovereignly orchestrated that fish to be there at the right time to swallow Jonah. And so that word appointed is going to show up a lot in Jonah. Um, The Lord appoints a plant. The Lord appoints a worm. The Lord appoints a wind. And the Lord appoints a fish. So Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. He's over everything. He rules over everything. Psalm 147, 4 through 5, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Okay, so we were left with the cliffhanger. Jonah is dumped at the bottom of the sea. And and kind of picture this. I'll give you just a a little bit of a... Well, I won't won't give that illustration because my wife's not here and I probably shouldn't get without her permission. But just think about being at the bottom of the ocean with seaweed going around your neck, picking in water. You're about to die. That's what Jonah is experiencing. So in chapter 2 we see that God does indeed save Jonah, but this salvation will come through suffering. Salvation through suffering. So let me ask you a question. Does God sometimes take us through suffering in order for us to be more like him? And if yes, he does, okay. So Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has predestined us to be conformed or to look like, or to be in the image of Christ. And one of the ways he does that is through suffering or even through discipline. 
God is disciplining Jonah for his disobedience. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the only reason God is doing this to Jonah is because he loves him. What I said last week, what could have God done with Jonah when he launched overboard and went to the bottom of the ocean? God could have said, Jonah, you disobeyed, you're done, die at the bottom of the ocean. Rot and let the plankton come and eat you or whatever. Get eaten by a shark. God doesn't do that. God's going to save Jonah. Now, there's a New Testament parallel to the story of Jonah. What story does Jesus tell? What parable does Jesus tell in the New Testament about a person that runs away? The prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but you remember the story of the prodigal son. His father gives him the... I mean, he goes and asks his father for the inheritance early, which basically in that culture means, Dad, I want you to drop dead. Usually you got the inheritance after the dad was dead. He goes and squanders it in a far-off country, wild living, and then he basically loses everything. He's destitute. He's at the bottom of the barrel. He's eating pig slop. And then it says he came to his senses and he went back. So he ran from his father. Jonah ran from his father. And God says, I'm going to save you, but it's going to be through a fish. Okay? So let's dive into Jonah chapter 2. It's fairly short. And I want you to notice something in your Bible. If you have a physical Bible or even if you have a digital Bible, chapter 1 is prose. Correct? What does chapter 2 look like? What's it compared to? What other book of the Bible does chapter 2 look like? Just on the page. A psalm. A psalm or a proverb. Okay? And then we go back to chapter 3 and it's back to prose. Okay? So we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But let's just read this. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, what we have recorded here is the prayer of Jonah. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. All right. What was markedly absent in chapter 1? Did Jonah ever once pray in chapter 1? Never prayed. Okay, how does chapter 2 start? Then... Jonah, what? Prayed to the Lord his God. 
Okay? And what he's praying is very, very similar to the Psalms. Okay? One thing we need to know about Jonah, he's a prophet. He was a man who probably had grown up knowing much of the Psalms. Maybe he had a lot of them memorized. He grew up going to the temple. He worshiped there. He heard the Psalms sung. He heard the Psalms recited. He was taught by the school of the prophets with Elijah and Elisha. So from his heart, this is kind of an interesting thing. What comes out of Jonah's heart when he's in distress? Scripture, the Psalms, the Word of God. He, in a sense, quotes or paraphrases the Psalms back to the Lord in his prayer. So, what does he say? What's the first thing he says in verse 2? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. He answered me out of my distress. Now, this is psalm language. All over the place. As a matter of fact, I think I've got a bunch of psalms in here that he kind of quotes or, or makes allusion to. Psalm 118, verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Sounds almost like verse 2 there. Psalm 130, 1 through 4. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attempted to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. Okay. Now, I talked about this last week. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Twice. So what was the big deal with Jonah? When he ran away, he was fleeing what? The presence of the Lord. Now, in the belly of the whale at the bottom of the ocean, what does he sense? He's losing. I ran away from the presence of the Lord, and now I really feel like I'm out of the presence of the Lord. I, I, where are you, God? I'm crying out in my distress. So now what's he doing? He's seeking the presence of the Lord. He fled from the presence of the Lord in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, he's seeking the presence of the Lord. Now I want to just talk briefly about the presence of the Lord. The manifest presence of the Lord. Now, what do we know about God theologically? Is God omnipresent? Is he all places at all times everywhere? Okay, yes. So God's presence is everywhere. What's God's manifest presence? Let me, let me do my best to explain it. God in his sovereignty chooses to inhabit the praises of his people. And the most powerful way he often does this is when we gather for worship on Sundays. Have you ever been in a worship service with other believers where you, and I hate to use the word feel, but you felt the presence of the Lord? You sensed the power of God. Now, does that mean God wasn't there before? No, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But it's a special 
God coming and visiting his people in a very special way. So when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, what should be our primary goal? To seek the presence of the Lord. As a matter of fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's this interesting statement about a worship service. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, so an unbeliever or an outsider enters into your worship service, what should happen? He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. You know, that's what I pray for every Sunday that an unbeliever would come into this very room and through the singing and through the fellowship and through the preaching, the Holy Spirit would be so powerful, they would fall on their face and say, I don't know what to do, but God's here. I'm convicted of my sin. God must be here. His presence is here. Um, and so that's what, that's what Jonah, Jonah theologically knows God's everywhere. But what he's praying for is, God, I need you right now. I need your presence right now in the belly of the well. And then notice what he does in verse 3. He attributes his misery to God. <laughs> he knows that he's, he's under God's discipline. What does he say in verse 3? You cast me into the deep. It wasn't an accident. Now, who cast him into the deep? The soldiers. Oh, not the soldiers. The sailors. The sailors threw him into the ocean. Okay. But who does he attribute it to? God, you did this. You are casting me into the deep into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounds me. All your waves and billows, they pass over me. I've tried to run from you, but now I know that you found me. You're in control. Remember when they asked Jonah what his, who are you? Where are you from? What's your profession? Remember he says, who's your God? I believe in the Lord God of heaven and earth. Before, when they were asking him those questions, because he was running away from God, he was disobedient, it was a hollow confession from Jonah. Yeah, God, you're sovereign over everything. That's, that's, my, that's my little confession. That's my, I have to say that because I'm a prophet. But now it's a reality. It's gone from being distant theology to deep experience. Let me ask you a question. We talked about this in our staff meeting this week. Can you know a truth in your head, but not truly know it in your heart until you experience it? You may know about God's sovereignty. You may know about God's power. But until you go through some type of experience where that's tested, you don't really fully understand the depths. Think about Job for a moment. You remember the book of Job? Job was a righteous man who feared the Lord. And Job had good theology. Job, Job knew who God was. Job was a worshiper of God. But he had to go through an immense time of testing to truly experience who God was. Now, here's the thing about Job. The whole book of Job is about why does the righteous person suffer? And then after his three friends come and give him bad advice, and then the fourth friend comes and gives him some okay good advice, finally God comes. And it, does God ever once tell, tell Job why he's suffering? 
As a matter of fact, God says to Job, Brace yourself like a man, I'm coming in a whirlwind. Were you there when I created the heavens? Were you there when I flung the stars? I mean, God just basically says, Jonah or Job, you have no idea who I am. And what does Job say at the end, the very last words of Job? After all this stuff, at the very end in Job 42, 1 through 6, it's kind of like Jonah. You have to go through it to experience it. Job says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know... My, one of my favorite verses in Job. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Kind of knew a little bit about you, God. I, I had the head knowledge of who you were, but now that I've gone through the suffering, I really know who you are. That's where Jonah's at right now. He was a prophet. He knew who God was. He knew God was sovereign. God was powerful. But in the belly of the fish, drowning at the bottom of the sea, he really knew who God was. So, as he's wrapped in seaweed at the bottom of the ocean, drowning in the tempest of the sea, he uses language that sounds like he's in a water grave. Look at the language. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. The flood surrounds me. All your waves and your, your billows pass over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet again, I shall look upon your temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Now, it's interesting, the root of the mountains. Are there mountains in the ocean? It's Jonah's way of probably talking about like coral reefs or things that were sticking up. Think about it. If you've never been to the bottom of the ocean and you see these things popping up, they look like mountains to me. So don't get hung up on the fact that why are there mountains in the ocean? Jonah is explaining for the first time what he's seeing at the bottom of the sea. And so again, this sounds like the Psalms. Psalm 42.7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Lamentations 3.54, Water closed over my head. I said, I'm lost. Now, verse 4 shows the intensity of Jonah's situation. Notice what verse 4 says. I am driven away from your sight. Okay, at first, like anybody, you would freak out because of the water. I don't like seaweed around my neck. I don't like not being able to breathe. I'm about to drown. Okay, so first he's panicking about the water. And then he thinks, I'm going to die here. And I'm probably never going to see God. I'm, I'm going to die here. I'm going to be out of the presence of the Lord. He's stricken with horror that he's fled the presence of the Lord. And God in his sovereignty would honor Jonah's request and cast him out forever. What's Jonah probably thinking? I've disobeyed God. 
He's giving me what I deserve. I've run away from his presence. He's going to let me die here at the bottom of the ocean in punishment. God's going to get me. This is frightening. He's stricken with horror. Again, this is Psalm 31, 22 language. I'd said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. I'm cut off. But you've heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried for help. So he thinks he's a goner. He thinks that he's punished forever, that he's run away from God, and God's given him his just deserts of having him rot at the bottom of the ocean. And then he mentions something very interesting here. When will I ever go back to look upon you in the temple? Verse 4. Will I be able to look upon you in the temple? It's really a question in the original language, in the original Hebrew. What was the temple for the Israelite? It was the one place where you met with God. The sacrificial system, the bulls, the goats, the worship. So here's his fear. Not only have I run from God, but I will die and never again be able to go and worship God in his holy place along with his people. Basically what Jonah's thinking is, I've, I've sinned so far, I've run so far, I've rebelled so far, I'm cut off from ever being with God's people again, ever being in the temple to worship again. I, God is, basically he's thinking, I'm going to die down here and go to hell. Okay, so let me ask you a question. As Christians, true Christians, and I use that word very carefully, true Christians, can we often think that maybe we've sinned beyond God's forgiveness? Or somehow we've lost our salvation because we've sinned so grievously. I'm not saying that's good theology, but I'm saying sometimes Christians think that. If you've rebelled in a period of deep disobedience to the Lord and and you're kind of in dire straits, you may think to yourself, I'm beyond his grasp. I'm too far gone. I've lost it. God would never take me back because I've sinned so much. Now, what did I say last week about God? What the Puritans call God? The holy hound of heaven. He will hunt you down and get you. And so that's what God does. God hunts Jonah down to the depths of the sea. He pursues us in the depths of our disobedience. Now, he may chastise us. He may discipline us. But he will finish his work in us. The good news here is that God does not abandon Jonah. Jonah's thinking God's abandoned him. I'm lost. I'm a goner. I'm going to rot down here in this ocean, never to see God's face again, and I'm going I'm to spend eternity in hell because I've rebelled against God. That's what he's thinking. And God would have every right to do it. Jonah, if that's what you want, that's what you get. But notice verse 6. Verse 6 is the turning point in the prayer. I went down to the land whose bars crossed upon me forever. Now, I don't know what those bars are that crossed over him forever. 
I don't know if he's thinking about the gates of hell he's thinking about there. I'm going to be forever barred up in the gates of hell. I don't know if it's the seaweed, it's the coral. I don't know what he's thinking about at the bottom of the ocean, but he's ultimately thinking, I'm toast. But then notice how it pivots. At the end, end of verse 6, you, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. How did God bring him up from the pit? Just when he thought he was a goner, going to drown with seaweed over his head and rot at the bottom of the ocean, God ordained a what? fish to come swallow him at just the right moment. Psalm 119, 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. <laughs> Think about that. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. What does it mean to go astray? I went astray, I rebelled, I ran away, then God, you afflicted me, God, then you discipline me and now because of that I'm going to keep your word and so because he's been saved by grace notice what he says in verse 7 when my life was fainting away I remembered you or I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay so he talks about this idolatry this vain idolatry there in verse 8 that's what's going on in Israel during the time of Jonah everybody's giving themselves to vain idols and Jonah's like listen once you've been saved by grace why would you ever want to go back and worship anything other than Jesus? For those of us who've been saved by grace, why give yourself to vain idols? Why mess around with the things of the world? Why waste your life on things that don't satisfy is what Jonah's saying. When you've truly, here's what he's saying. If you've run away from the Lord and you know you're a goner and you deserve hell and he saves you by grace when he doesn't have to and loves you and captures you and saves you, why in the world would you spend the rest of your life not giving everything to Jesus and trying cheap substitutes to try to satisfy? Psalm 31.6 I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Psalm 119.75-76 I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to the promise of your servant. In your faithfulness you've afflicted me. Okay, God's not doing this to be mean to Jonah. God's doing this to save Jonah. Jonah rebelled. God could have left him there. God could have not saved him. God's taking him through this ordeal to chasten him, to discipline him in love what does Jonah vow to do obviously he's not going to sacrifice when he's in the fish but he's assuming 
when God gets me out of this fish situation, I'm going to go back and I'm going to worship. Verse 9, with, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah, now, after being saved, is a worshiper. Now, think about the sailors that we saw last week. Remember the sailors were saved, and what did they do? They sacrificed to the Lord. Jonah ran away. Now Jonah is spending time in intense worship to the Lord for his great salvation. So do you see the pattern of Jonah? God says, go. He rebels, runs away, doesn't own up to it, rebels pretty, pretty uh, grievously, wants to die, gets thrown over the ship, thinks he's going to die and go to hell, and knows that God has every right to do that. God comes and saves him. And then he's turned into a worshiper. So here's the point for us. For those who truly understand the depths of depravity from which they've been saved are those who worship God with intensity for his amazing grace. You can't but worship God if you've been saved by God from sin. Salvation. So God showed tremendous mercy to Jonah. Paul says this, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich, look at, listen to the words here, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You lifted me up from the pit. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. You set my feet. You took me out of the pit, out of the moggy buyer. Moggy buyer. The boggy mire. It's a weird word. It sounds like a Star Wars term. A moggy buyer. A, and you put me on the rock. Okay. Jonah is a wonderful picture of the gospel. Okay, let's just talk about the parallels here. First of all, we all deserve to be cast out of the presence of the Lord because of our rebellion. Do we deserve to be in the presence of the Lord as sinners? No, we do not. As a matter of fact... How does the Bible describe hell on that final day? Listen to how Paul describes the final day of judgment in hell. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. Jesus will come back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Listen to how Paul describes it. Away from the presence of the Lord. 
and from the glory of his might. How does Paul describe hell? It's punishment away from the Lord, not in the presence of the Lord, cast out of the presence of the Lord. That's what we all deserve. But what did, what, what did, what did Jesus do? Okay, Jonah underwent punishment at the bottom of the sea where the flood came over him. Jesus suffered the punishment on the cross where the flood of God's justice came over him. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? Mark 15, 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sekbakthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jonah was not forsaken, but Jesus was. God did not spare Jesus. Jesus died. Okay, what did Jesus do on the third day? We just celebrated it a few days ago. Third, Jesus destroyed death on the third day. He came out of the tomb. How does, this, how does verse 10 end? The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. Jonah experienced a vomiting resurrection. And how many days was he in the belly of the fish? Three days and three nights. Now we'll talk about that next week. But needless to say, he experienced somewhat of a resurrection like we will on that final day. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, this written death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the very last thing is, on that final day, we'll be presented as blameless before God. What's our ultimate experience of future salvation? We want to be what? In the we long for the presence of God now, right? But when we're in heaven, we will be what? In the immediate presence of God. Not away from his presence like those who will be in hell, but in his presence. And it's all because of Jesus. We'll be presented in God's presence, blameless, as Jude verse 24 says, Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So we're done with chapter 2. We're ready to go home now, right? No. Because the most important statement, probably in all of Jonah, comes at the end of verse 9. So for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to unpack this, that one little statement. What does he say at the end? What does Jonah say at the very end? Salvation belongs to the Lord. What does it mean that salvation belongs to the Lord? Let me say it this way, and we're going to unpack this tonight. God in eternity past planned your salvation. Jesus on the cross over 2,000 years ago accomplished your salvation. At a point in time, you trusted in Jesus and you were saved. Right now, you're in the process of being saved, and one day you will be fully saved. So salvation involves past, present, future. 
and salvation is of the Lord. It does not say salvation comes by works. Salvation comes by trying. Salvation comes in many different ways. Jesus is one of many ways. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, when you see Lord there in all caps in your Bible, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. So, what I want to do for the rest of the time tonight is to take a theological detour and explore what it means to be saved. Okay? R.C. Sproul tells a story about how he was walking across Temple University College campus back in the 70s, and this young student comes up to him and says, Are you saved? And R.C. Sproul said, From what? And the guy's like, What do you mean from what? If you're going to tell me how to get saved, from what? And he's like, well, What do you mean? And R.C. Sproul said, let me give you some advice here, young man. Every single person needs to be saved from God. What? I thought it was saved from sin. Yes. Here's the point of Jonah. Did God have every right to punish Jonah and leave him dead at the bottom of the ocean? Yes. But God saved Jonah by grace alone. So, we're going to look at the aspects or the order or all the ways that the Bible speaks of salvation. And we're going to, I want you to open your Bibles. I'll, I'll put it up on the screen, but we're going to keep coming back to it. So if you may want to just open your Bibles, because I don't want to keep going back to the screen to, to show that verse. But, but let's go to Romans 8.30. Now, this is not a definitive verse that gives every aspect of salvation, but it does give a lot. And there's other parts of the Bible that, that, that speak about things. So, Romans 8.30, chapter 8, verse 30, Paul gives a succinct statement about the aspects of our salvation. And it runs the gamut. Goes all the way back to eternity past, moves all the way to eternity future, and everything in between. So Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're going to go through this list of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7... I'm going to introduce them to you right now, and then we're going to go through them. Okay, so what are the aspects or the order, this is sometimes called the order of salvation. What, what I want you to think of here is, um, think of an umbrella with salvation being the big umbrella. Okay, the Bible speaks of salvation, but underneath it is there's different categories of how we're saved. There's differences, there's timing differences, there's aspect differences. And so we can use the big, the big ticket salvation, but underneath that, there's different aspects of that in different orders of how those things happen. Okay, So the first is predestination. 
What does Paul say there in Romans 8? Those whom he predestined. So what is predestination? And again, we're going to go through these, each of these individually. I'm just introducing them to you right now. God chose individuals before the creation of the world to be saved. I'm just giving you the definition right now. We'll come back and look at it. Then comes effectual calling. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So God called those individuals inwardly and effectually at a point in time. Regeneration. Now, regeneration does not show up in Romans 8.3, but there's other passages that teach regeneration. God caused those individuals to be born again by overcoming their spiritual deadness and granting them new life. Okay. Those whom he called, he also justified. Okay. When you place your faith in Christ, God credits the righteousness of Christ to those individuals whereby he legally declared them to be forever not guilty. It's a one-time thing. Then there's sanctification. Those individuals who were chosen, called, regenerated, and justified, God continues to work his sustaining grace in them so that they will grow in holiness. Again, we're going to come back to these. I'm just introducing you to them right now. Then there's perseverance. Perseverance means that those individuals who were chosen, called, regenerated, and justified will endure to the end, never fall away from the faith. God will ensure that they are finally saved. And then last is what we call glorification. Those whom God justified, he also glorified. On that final day, God will grant those individuals a resurrected body in which they will live forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. This categorization has often been called the order of salvation. There is an order to how God operates. When you read the fullness of the Bible and you put the pieces together, you can say, I was saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. But when did that happen? Before the foundation of the world. When did that happen? When Jesus died on the cross. When did that happen? When I believed in Jesus. When did that happen? It's happening right now. When did that happen? It hasn't happened yet. You understand what I'm saying? So when the Bible talks about salvation, there's, an, there's a logical and a theological order of how these things work out. Now, the way you experience them in time, it may not be that precise as the list that I'm giving you here. Okay? But there are some time aspects that the Bible talks about. So, let's start with the very beginning, predestination. This happened before the world was even created. This happened before anything was ever created. You were even born. So, God chose a particular group of individuals before the creation of the world to be saved. Now, let's go to Jesus real quick here. John 6, 37 through 40. This is Jesus talking. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Okay, I want you to pay attention to verse 37. All, there's an all there. Who's the all? It 
can't be everybody. Believers. Okay. Jesus is saying all of this group that the Father, what? Gives to Jesus will what? They'll come to him. So here's my question. Does the Father give anybody to Jesus who won't come to Christ? No. Does everybody come to Christ? No. Does that mean the Father's given everybody to Christ? No. The Father's given an all. That all is a specific group that was chosen before the foundation of the world. And they will come. It doesn't say they might come. They may come. Before the foundation of the world, the Father gave to Jesus a group of people called the church, called the elect, called believers, and at a point in time, they will come to faith in Christ. And he'll never cast them out. He will raise them up on the last day. So the Father has given to Jesus a people who will come. Okay, let's look at Acts 13.48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen to this. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let's ask about the order here. Did you believe first or were you appointed to eternal life first? Were you appointed to believe or were you appointed to eternal life? What does the text say? What does it mean to be appointed? To be ordained. To be predestined. To be chosen. Those who were chosen to eternal life believed. So here's the question. Why did you believe? Why did you become a Christian? Because you were appointed to eternal life. The reason you believed is because you were appointed to believe. Your believing didn't cause you to be appointed. Your believing was because you were already appointed. Question, when did God make this appointment? When did God make this choice? When did God do this appointing that caused you to believe? Glad you asked, because there's a scripture for it, okay? Ephesians chapter 1, 4 and 5. Even as he, this is the Father, chose us in him, that's Christ, when? When did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now, one more verse, and then I'm going to stop and make a few statements. Second Thessalonians 2, 13-14. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning... For salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. This may be new territory for some of you to think about God making a sovereign choice or predestining before the foundation of the world. I'm not asking you to fully understand it, and I'm not asking you to wrap your mind around it. Because there's a lot of debate. What I'm basically trying to say is this. No matter how you slice it, God planned your salvation before you were born. God planned your salvation before the world was even created. 
God had an eternal plan for you to be saved. So if you're saved today, it wasn't just an accident. God planned that in eternity past for you to be saved. So the very fact that you're a Christian is because God had it planned before the world was even created. Now how that all works out, that's a different discussion for a different day, and we can go on a bunch of rabbit trails. But the point is, the order that Paul gives us in Romans 8.30 is those whom he predestined. Okay, you got the word predestined. I've had some people say to me, Pastor Sean, I don't believe in predestination. And I said, that's funny, because the word's in the Bible. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. It's there in Romans chapter 8. You've got the word choose. So you can't come to me and say, I don't believe in predestination. What you can say to me is, I don't understand how it all works. But you have to deal with the text that says, God predestined us before the foundation of the world. Now, I'll let you come ask me questions afterwards or explore it on your own. My point is, your salvation, big ticket umbrella, if salvation's of the Lord, when did it start? Before the foundation of the world. Now, those whom he predestined, what does Romans 8, 30 say? Those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. So when did the predestination take place? I guess you can say in eternity past. The eternity doesn't really have time, but before the foundation of the world is when the predestination took place. Effectual calling comes at a point in time. There comes a point in time when the Holy Spirit does an inward call to you personally. Now, the outward call goes out. So like on a Sunday morning or right now, I'm preaching the gospel. The words go out. But there may be a lot of people that don't hear that are unsaved. The inward call means that the outward call goes, the preaching of the gospel goes out, but the Holy Spirit does an inward call to bring about an awakening, an understanding, a conviction. Okay, John 6, 65. Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me, come to him, believe in him, unless it's granted him by the Father. The Father has to grant you the ability to have faith, and that comes through this call. Now, we see it in real time in a woman named Lydia. In Acts 16, 14, you can see her being called. The word called is not necessarily used there, but you can see in Acts 16, 14, one who was listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Who opened her heart? The Lord. What did she do once her heart was opened? She responded. Now, let me ask you a question. Did you read that passage carefully? One of those listening. Lydia was listening. She was hearing the message. Did it make any sense or did it have any impact on her until the Lord opened her heart? She could have listened to Paul all day long and tracked with him. I mean, doesn't mean that you don't understand the facts or you don't understand the information. A person can sit there. I've had witnessing situations where a person agrees with everything you're saying. But until that internal call comes where the Lord opens your heart, opens your eyes, and I can't do that. Can you do that to anybody? 
I can't do that. I can declare the message. I can share the gospel. I can preach, but I can't open anybody's heart. Only God can do that. And once God does that, she was able to truly hear. So there's a calling. Now, calling and regeneration are really closely tied together. Okay, so the next one's the calling is more that internal working, and it brings about regeneration. Now, what does regeneration mean? What's a generator? Why would you need a generator? It's not a trick question. To give power, okay? What does Genesis mean? Beginning, birth, okay. So regeneration means to be born again. So God causes those individuals who were predestined, those individuals who were called, he causes those individuals to be born again by overcoming their spiritual deadness and granting them new life. Now, the question is, why do you need to be regenerated? Why do you need to be born again? Let's stop and talk about the need. Let's talk about spiritual deadness and inability for a moment. John 6, 44. This is where Jesus, remember John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. It's a promise, right? If you've been given to Jesus by the Father, you're going to come to him. Then down in verse 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me. Okay, you can't come unless, what, what's the unless? What has to happen? The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come. Now, let me ask you a question. If I were to go teach the children tonight in Team Kid, and a kid comes up to me and says, can I go to the bathroom? I'd say, I don't know, can you? Do you have the ability? That's not, or should they some say, May I use the restroom? Yes, you may. I'm granting you permission. Is Jesus talking about ability or permission here? No one has permission to come to me. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying no one can. And let me tell you why we're talking about ability here. Because the Greek word used there for no one can is the Greek word dunamis, which means ability or power. No one in and of his or herself has the power to believe or come to Jesus. You can't come unless what has to happen to you? Regenerated. The Father has to draw you. Now here's the question. Can that drawing be resisted? If the Father draws you, can you resist it? No, because what did Jesus say earlier? All that the Father gives me will come to me. If if you've been given by the Father to Jesus, you're going to come. Now you can't come unless the Father draws you. And when he draws you, he's going to make sure you come. It's going to be a full-blown regeneration. It could take a while. Yeah, in some people it's instantaneous. In other people it may be a process. But the bottom line is it's God the one that does it. John 8.34 says this. So you can't come to Jesus unless God does something in you. John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Without Christ, you are a slave to sin. Being a slave to sin means that's all you can do. You're enslaved to it. You're in bondage to it. You're in shackles and you can't get yourself out. Something needs to happen to you to get you out of slavery. You can't get yourself out. 
Romans 8, 6-8, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, if you're unsaved, if you're unregenerate, you can't please God, you can't submit to God, you're hostile to God, you are an enemy of God. And then here's probably the most graphic description, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead. Okay, let me ask you, what's the Greek word for dead? Dead. Okay. Dead. Not asleep. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, here's the problem. Every single person is born in this condition of being dead, being lost, being enslaved, cannot come to Jesus, having a hostile mind, cannot submit. You can't do anything to get yourself out of that. God has to do the work. He has to open your heart. He has to open your eyes. He has to regenerate you. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the teacher in Israel, smart guy, comes to Jesus at night and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And let's just pick up in chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, that's Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're spiritually blind unless you're born again. Nicodemus said to him, I'm not tracking with you, Jesus. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's thinking physical. I'm a grown man. How am I going to pop back up into my mom's womb and come out again? That's kind of weird, Jesus. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So that leads to a question. Okay, how do you born again yourself? Do you just wake up one day and say, I'm going I'm to born again myself? What does Jesus say? That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, you can't cause this being born again. It has to be spiritual in nature. The Holy Spirit has to do it. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Can you control how the Holy Spirit does that? No, because Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. You must be born again. You can't do that yourself. The Holy Spirit has to sovereignly cause you to be born again. Why are you born again? Let's backtrack. You were predestined. You were called. You were born again. God did that. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. We looked at this a little bit earlier, but a little bit different language. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. 
together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. Regeneration is another way of saying you've been made alive. You were spiritually dead, you've been made spiritually alive. You were a slave to sin, you've been born again. Titus uses the, the actual language of regeneration. Titus 3, 4-5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. How are you saved? By the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Did that in you. He caused you to be born again. And then 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, so before the foundation of the world, God predestined you to be saved. At a point in time, under God's sovereign pleasure, He inwardly and effectually called you. He convicted you. He opened your eyes. He showed you the truth. Then at that same point in time, He regenerated you. He caused you to be born again. He overcame that spiritual deadness. He brought you new life. And what did you do at that moment? You personally believed in Jesus. The Holy Spirit didn't believe for you. You exercised faith in Christ. Why did you exercise faith in Christ? Because it was planned for you to do so, and God brought you to that point to actually birth the faith in you so that you could exercise it on your own. Before you couldn't come to Christ, you couldn't do it, God had to do that work in you. Now, when you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you are justified. Those whom he predestined, he also called slash regenerated you believed as a result of being regenerated. Those whom he called, he also justified. So what does it mean to be justified? Or justification. Upon the exercise of faith, again, you exercise faith as a result of that work of God in your heart. God credited the righteousness of Christ to those individuals whereby he legally declared them to be forever guilty. Okay, here's, here's what justification means, okay? So think about it this way. I've, if you've heard this from me for the past 16 years, I apologize because I say it a lot, but some of you are new and you need to hear it again. Okay. Picture your life as a bank account. Okay. Picture your life as a bank account. Credits, debits. Okay. On one side of the ledger is your life. And God is the judge of the universe and he looks down upon your life. And because of your sin, what does God see in your bank account? Does he see like a zero balance? No, he sees like a negative, we'll make up a word, negative gazillion balance. Let's use the word trillion because that's been thrown a lot around a lot with our government. $2.3 trillion negative balance, okay? Can you in any way make up for that negative in your bank account, no matter what you do? You can't, okay? When you believe in, and so the other side of the bank account is Jesus. So one, one bank account ledger is you, the other side is Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Ugh. The other side is Jesus. So when you believe in Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, a transaction happens. Kind of a banking transaction happens. Out of your account, 
goes all of your sin, and it goes to Jesus. So a transfer out of your account of all your sin, all that negative balance goes out of your account. It goes to Jesus. He takes your sin. Now, what does that leave you at? Zero. Anybody want to have a zero in their bank account? It's better than negative 2.8 trillion, but you kind of want to have a positive. Okay. Can you create a positive account in your balance? No, you can't. So something happens going back the other way. So not only when you believe, does your debt go out to Jesus, but guess what comes into your account? Jesus' perfect record. His perfect record of righteousness goes into your account. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It was given to you as a gift of faith. Now, when God looks down upon your life, what does he see now? Does he see that negative balance? Does he even see a zero? What does he see now? He sees Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And based upon that, God can look down upon you and say, because I see your sins forgiven and the righteousness of Christ, I can make a legal declaration forever that you are not guilty. You're permanently accepted in my presence. You are justified. That's what the word means. Now let's just look at some scriptures in Romans that teach this. Again, we're talking about all the aspects of salvation. Predestination, calling, regeneration. By the way, I call these the, either, I call these the ION words. Or if you're from the Cajun South, the Sean words. Salvation. Regeneration. Predestination. And here we've got justification. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, so Romans 3.24. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We're justified through faith. When we exercise faith, it's not our faith that saves us. It's not our faith that justifies us. Faith's merely the instrument that attaches us to Christ. It's Him that saves us. It's His righteousness. Romans chapter um, 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as due. Let's stop right there. When you go to work, you get a paycheck, right? Anybody here want to work for free? You know, the, the direct deposit comes in your paycheck or your, your boss gives you a check. I'm like, no, this week I work for free. I don't really want to get a paycheck. Nobody here would do that, right? When you work, you get what you work for, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way we operate. But Paul says that's not the way salvation works. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not working for salvation, it's believing in Jesus. It's not by works, it's by faith alone. And then Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, big umbrella salvation. We're saved. Okay, when did that start? In eternity past, before the foundation of the world, when God predestined you. Okay, when, when did that happen? It happened at a point in time where the Holy Spirit came and He called you inwardly and effectually and He regenerated you. And then because of that, you exercise faith in Jesus. And as a result of that faith, your sins were credited to Christ and His righteousness was credited to you and you were justified. Justification is a one-time thing. It's never to be repeated. There's not degrees of justification. There's not levels of justification. It's a one-time instantaneous declaration by God when you trust in Jesus that your sins are forgiven and you're righteous in Christ. 
Now, we live the Christian life, and so we have been saved, but now we are being saved. It's called sanctification. This is what most of you are going through right now. Those individuals who were chosen, called, regenerated, and justified, God continues to work His sustaining grace in them so that they will grow in holiness. This is the process of growing to be more like Jesus. This is progress. Justification is a one-time event. Sanctification is ongoing. There's ups and there's downs. There's hills, there's valleys, there's periods of growth, there's periods of backsliding. It's, it's the Christian life. But the goal is to be more holy, more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's live pure, holy reverent lives before the Lord. Okay, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We often stop right there. But why were we saved? Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we were saved by grace, but to live a life of good works. Now here's probably one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture. Philippians 2, 12-13. Okay. Verse 12 gives us our responsibility. Verse 13 tells about God's responsibility. Okay. Verse, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. Not work for your salvation, but work it out. Obey. Pursue holiness. Walk in the fear of the Lord. You have a responsibility to grow in obedience. How in the world do I do that? I can't do that. That seems impossible. There's no way I can do that. Or some of you may think, give me the list and I can do it. Just give me the list of what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. Verse 13 is the encouragement. For it is God who does what? Works in you to both will and to work for his good pleasure. God is constantly working in you to help you grow, to give you the power to grow, to give you the desire to grow. And here's the thing. Sometimes you're not even aware of that. You're not even aware that God's working. Let me ask you a question. Is God working all the time? Does God ever sleep and slumber? Is God working on you all the time? Are you always perceptive of God's working in your life? <clears throat> no. Does that mean that just because you don't realize that he's not working? He's always working in us to will and to have work for his good pleasure. And then Titus 2, 11 through 12 talks about God's grace in our life. It helps us. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. What is that? The grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. 
So, predestination. God planned your salvation in eternity past. Effectual calling. At a point in time, the Holy Spirit inwardly called you. He regenerated you. You believed in Jesus. You were justified. One time act, declared not guilty. Now you're living in the process of growing to be a Christian, growing to become a, a, a mature Christian, growing in holiness. is called sanctification. Okay, now, the, the next one is called perseverance. Okay, am I going to make it to the end? Am I going to lose my salvation? I'm going to be like Jonah at the bottom of the ocean thinking, God's given up on me. So here's perseverance. Those individuals who were chosen, predestined, who were called, who were regenerated, who were justified, what's going to happen? They will endure to the end and never fall away from the faith. God will ensure that they're finally saved. Okay, there's, there's two sides to the same coin here. One side of the coin is eternal security. You can't lose your salvation. The other side of the coin is God's going to work in you to make sure that you endure to the end and not lose your salvation. You're going to persevere. So if you're truly, so think about it this way. This is kind of a crude way of saying it. If God went to all the trouble before the foundations of the world to choose you and at a point in time to call you and to regenerate you and to justify you and to continue to sanctify, you think he's just going to leave it up to you to fail at the end? Some people believe that. Some people believe you can walk away. We don't believe that here at Emmanuel. We believe that you are fully and finally saved. Listen to, to, John, to Jesus in John 10, uh, 27 through 30. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Perish means to, to, to suffer in hell. It's a double negative there, Jesus uses. You'll never, know, not ever, suffer in hell. I've given you eternal life. You're in my grip, and you're in the Father's grip, because I and the Father are one. You're in the double grip. I'm never going to let anybody snatch you out of my hand, Jesus says. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. God is faithful to sustain you to the end. He will work in you. He will make sure you get to the end. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He'll bring it to completion. When he started, he'll complete 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Surely do what? Keep you blameless for that final day. So, those whom he predestined before the foundation of the earth at a point in time he called. Those same people he called and he regenerated. You believed in Jesus. 
you were justified permanently. Now we're living in the process of sanctification where God is working in you. And he's going to make sure that you never stumble or fall or lose your salvation, that you'll make it to the end. And then what does Paul say there in Romans 8.30? What's the last thing? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also, what's the last one? Glorified. What's glorification? What's being glorified? It's the very final stage in our salvation. On the final day, God will grant those individuals a resurrected body in which they will live forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our future salvation of being in heaven, being glorified on that final day. So, when did the predestination take place? Before the foundation of the world. When did the calling and the regeneration and the justification take place? At a point in time. When is sanctification and perseverance taking place? Right now. What's the one thing we haven't experienced yet? Glorification. When is that going to happen? When we are in heaven. Now, I'm going to ask you a question there. Look at Romans 8.30. Is your Bible still open to Romans 8.30? What tense are all those verbs in? It's an English question. They're all in what tense? Past tense. Now, we can understand how predestination is in the past tense. We can understand how being called is in the past tense. We can understand how being justified is in the past tense. But why would being glorified be in the past tense if it hasn't happened yet? So here's the question. Why does Paul speak of something that hasn't happened yet as if it's already happened? I'm going to skip for the sake of time that 1 Corinthians passage because we looked at that earlier. But it just talks about being changed at the final moment. But here's the thing. Paul uses the past tense to show us that in God's mind and according to his divine decree, those whom he predestined, called, justified, are as good as glorified as a future reality even though it hasn't happened yet because God will ensure our redemption on that final day. In God's mind, in God's mind, you're as good as just, you're as good as in heaven. So here's a question: When does eternal life start? If you read the Gospel of John, eternal life starts when you become a Christian. Now we get to experience the fullness of it when we get to heaven. But in God's mind, if He's already predestined you, and He's done, think about it this way: God has done everything from first to last to ensure that you're going to be saved from predestining you all the way to glorifying you and every step in between. And in God's mind, it's good as done because what he started, he'll complete. Salvation is of the Lord. That's why, back to Jonah, that's where we, that's where we were. Remember, we're in Jonah tonight. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, we've got 10 minutes. We'll, we'll skip a couple of scriptures here. You guys can read that. Um, Jonah, let's go back to Jonah now. Because his, his, Jonah's final declaration after being at the bottom of the sea, being swallowed by the fish, what's his final declaration? Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah, a lot like Job, knew the theological truth about God, 
but now through the crucible of an extreme experience has come to know God more personally. Now, you would think that this sense of awe that God would save us from our sins should help us in our evangelism. After all, what was Jonah called to do? Go share the message as a prophet to the pagan Gentiles. He was supposed to go evangelize. He didn't want to go evangelize. He didn't have a heart for the lost. Remember the sailors on the ship? He didn't, he didn't say, hey guys, I need to repent. You need to repent. Let's turn this boat around. At the bottom of the ocean, when God saves him, he finally says, salvation of the Lord. When you're saved by grace, it should help you understand the plight of those without Jesus. What we just went through tonight, from your predestination to your future glorification and everything in between, just stop and think for a moment. Two things. Number one, God did not have to do that to you. And number two, people without Christ don't have that blessing. Do you not want them to experience the joy of being saved? So when you understand what God has done, when you understand salvations of the Lord, it should drive you to, number one, be thankful for your salvation, but number two, it should drive you to want to share it with others who don't have hope, that they can be saved, that they can have a relationship with Christ, that they can seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So, every single one of us who've been saved by grace, the way Jonah was, should be the first to stand up and say, I've got to go share this message of salvation with as many people as I can because salvation's of the Lord. Now, here's the problem with Jonah. His experience in the fish should have given him compassion to go share the gospel with the Ninevites. How does Jonah do in this task? of sharing the gospel with the Ninevites. You'll have to come back next week and find out in chapter 3. Or if you read ahead, you can, you can cheat. So we've got a few moments left. What, about six, seven, eight minutes here? Um, do we have any questions? Is it not going to Facebook? It's not on YouTube? Oh, it must have, it must have, okay. Somebody just Facebook, it's always getting weird Facebook messages. I can't see you. I'm not paying attention because I'm teaching. That's okay. Yes, Deb. Yeah, good question. I may restate your question for those on Facebook. The question is, before the foundation of the world, were we like a, we like a pre, 
a, like a soul that was already in existence that came into being? And the answer is no. You do not become a living soul until you are conceived by your parents and become, you know, at the point of conception is when you have a soul. Okay. But in God's mind, even though you weren't born yet, he specifically chose you knowing that you would be born. More than just foreseeing, God, God foresaw it, but he also chose. There's a difference between God just knowing that it's going to happen and God choosing it to happen. Think about this. Think about all the things that had to take place for you to be here today. Millions of choices that God ensured would happen to this very point. Does that answer your question, Deb? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Psalm 139 is a good place. Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a Neoplatonic kind of Greek thought, Aristotle and Plato, that we were a soul out there. And then when we were born, the soul kind of joins the body. But that's not a Christian thought. The Christian thought is the soul comes into being at the point of conception. Even though in God's mind, he knew you were going to exist. He created you to exist. And he chose you to be saved. Yeah. As a matter of fact, does anybody have any other questions? I'll take you to a verse that's kind of interesting. Anybody have any other questions? Because I'll get, I'll get sidetracked. Brent, go ahead as I'm turning there. Two or three sentences. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, gosh. I did like three or four podcasts on this, on my Understanding Christianity podcast. Um, so there is a view of election called corporate election. And corporate election basically says that God did not choose particular individuals to be saved. God chose the group. God chose the church. God chose the elect group. So God chose that there would be saved people, but he didn't choose anybody individually. At a point in time, you use your own free will to choose to be part of that group. And once you do that, then you become one of the elect. So it's kind of like this, the, the, the analogy they'll use. A plane leaves Denver, and it's going to New York. The plane is predestined to the destination from Denver to New York. So there's a predestined plan. You get on the plane, the plane's predestined to get you to New York. That's the plan. That's the predestination. But you've got to buy the ticket and get on the plane. Once you get on the plane and you choose to get on the plane, you're part of that predestined plan and you'll get to the destination. But the destination of the plan was planned out, but you weren't particularly. You had to choose to get into the plan. Does that make sense? I mean, does that make... You said two or three sentences. Yeah. So, okay. I'll just leave that for another day. There's two, there's, historically, there have been two groups 
in church history that have believed in individual election unto salvation before the foundation of the world. One group believes it's based upon foreknowledge of what God saw would happen. The other is the correct view that we believe that God chose based upon his sovereign choice. But both those views are individual election before the foundation of the world. Corporate election comes along and says, no, you other two are wrong. It's not individual salvation. It's a plan of salvation that's predestined. You get into the plan by using your free will to get into the plan. Once you get into the plan, you become one of the elect. Now that I've totally confused everybody tonight. Acts 17. I was going to take you guys to a verse. Okay, ooh, it's 8.01. That clock's slow. Never mind. Let's pray. You guys got to go pick up your kids. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know there's been a lot of information like drinking from a fire hose, but one thing we want to remember is salvation, it belongs to the Lord. We may not understand the fullness of all these truths, but Lord, one thing we can do is we can get on our knees and thank you for saving us. You didn't, you, you, you didn't uh, have to do that. You were under no obligation to do that. You did that because of your grace. You did that because of your mercy, your love. All we can do is say thank you and be in awe and just give you all the credit, Lord. Help us to be humble. Help us to be thankful. Help us to share this message with others, how they can have the hope of salvation being from the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.